who has taught us all what activism really means is Tanya. Um, who I've also had the pleasure of working with, um, fighting with, uh, bargaining with, uh, and basically worshiping. So um, it is really an honor to um, introduce Carmen, who is going to be introducing all of the speakers. Um, the event tonight, as all of you know, is co-organized by Penn's Artists at Risk Connection, known as ARC, um, one of Penn America's newest programs and initiatives, and is presented in conjunction with the current exhibition by Times Square Arts and the Watermill Center, another institution I dearly love, um, Word on the Street. Uh, and I want to give a special thank you to all of Penn's co-partners, the Watermill Center, House of Trees, and uh, Tim Tompkins, Andrew Drindle, and MPAC of Times Square Arts. I hope all of you are here. I also encourage you to join all of them in Times Square on May 1st for Workshop on the Street, May Day, um, in which you can participate in Word on the Street project by making your own political wearables. Uh, I also just want to tell you a little bit more about Penn's ARC program. Uh, it is the first of its kind global hub that seeks to help at-risk artists around the world, and we really mean in hundreds of countries, and to strengthen the organizations that serve them. There are more than 600 organizations involved, and all of us work together to ensure that artists everywhere can live and work without fear. And of course, you can check out the website to learn more. Um, and now I'm very happy to introduce uh, uh, Carmen Hermo, who is the assistant curator uh, uh, for the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum. Thank you so much. Good evening, thank you for coming. Um, I'm Carmen, as Alexander so generously introduced me. I do have to give a shout out to Andre Junta and Cecilia Fajardo Hill, who are the curators of the Radical Women Show. I was a lucky person who coordinated for the Brooklyn Museum. They are the ones who worked on it for 10 years. Um, so, um, but I do appreciate all the love and support, and I'm gonna now turn that love and support over to this illustrious and amazing panel. So I'd like to call out Amy Koshbin. Iranian and American artist based here in New York, but uh, on residencies everywhere, it seems. Oh, yeah. um, let's see who's next, Tanya Bruguera. <laughs> Cuban artivist, which we'll talk about. And I know many people are expecting A.M. Holmes, but we're very lucky instead uh, to have Anne Carson, the poet, essayist, translator, here with us tonight. Thank you all for being here. And of course, do you want to thank uh, Times Square Arts, Watermill Center, House of Trees, Artists at Risk Connection, and of course, the Pen America World Voices Festival. So we're all thrilled to be here. And I'll just dive in, because I know we are strictly on a time here. Um, so the title of this conversation is Artist Takes the Street. And to me, that sort of implies a coming out, a reclamation of space, of public space. And so I want to ask all of you, what is the street in your practice, if there is a street? Uh, who is your public? And how do you adapt your work to maybe different audiences, different publics? Well, uh <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm so privileged to be on the stage with these amazing artists and women. And I just want to thank everybody for being here. Um, I am a multidisciplinary Iranian-American artist. and. This project, Word on the Street, which we'll be talking about in a little bit, it was born from this idea of questioning what the street is and the difference between the institution and the street and how we can sort of break down and this sort of feedback loop that we see happening between the institution and the street and how do we get art objects in the public space and vice versa. Um, so for me in my practice, um, I guess I'm gonna start, if that's cool, okay. <laughs> um, for me in my practice, the street is the idea of being in the public space, whether that's actually a physical street, the site of the street, or the media, or social media, et cetera. 
Um, and so what I try to do with a lot of the work that I've been doing, honestly, for a long time, but especially ramped up since the 2016 election, has been try to um, have, okay, my brain just went dead. I'll be honest with you, I just got off a plane. Um, <laughs> um, but to have that, uh, wait a minute, let me catch my breath, hold on. Yeah, okay, since the 26, it's traumatizing, right? Okay, so since the 2016 election, for me, the street is engaging with the public, whether that's in an art context, a literary context, a cultural context, or outside of that. So my practice has opened up, and I've been using stand-up comedy. I do a lot of performance work. I've been using rap music. I've been using um, political engagement, actual protest, making protest banners, the banner-making workshop you were seeing to engage publics to have dialogues that might not normally happen. So being Iranian American, for me, I am, I pass as white. You wouldn't look at me and necessarily think I wasn't white. And so I think I have this privilege of passing between a lot of different communities. And in that way, I'm using that privilege to pass between a lot of different media um, that allow for a greater dialogue to happen and, and conversation and catharsis ideally to happen to bring the art, to open up the art community and to have a broader dialogue. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay, thank you, friends. Yeah, so the question just riffs off the idea of the street, the public. Um, who, what's the street in your practice? Who's your public? Okay, so uh, thank you for inviting me to be with these wonderful uh, people. Um, um, so, I, I think the street is a responsibility. Um, and I also think that sometimes is kind of, um, I don't know, maybe dangerous maybe, to think that the streets are only to be taken in huge amounts and in big sizes. I think what I'm more interested is in the small streets, in the everyday streets, the one where you actually do the right thing to the person next to you. Um, I understand and I'm so happy <laughs> that here people are taking the street with big numbers. I think that's very important, but also it's important not to forget that the street is the moment where we actually can exercise the society we want. It's the one space where, yeah, although that you have to cross this way, the regulations are put by you in a way. The way you behave is the way you decide to behave in a way. Um, so I think that does for me. Um, the other thing is uh, that I feel uh, that, I don't know, I think the people you were saying like, it's interesting because I come from a different um, tradition, a tradition where the private is completely public and accessible to anybody, and if you try to close it down, close it, it becomes a political issue. So you have to have this fake transparency of being actually open to what your personal life is to everybody. And at the same time I come from, in Cuba, the house is the space of freedom because you cannot do anything outside. Um, every time you try to do something in the actual streets, um, you go to jail, <laughs> they detain you. So we have started to understand that sometimes the streets are inside corridors in your house. Um, and I think, I've seen, I've seen this here as well, uh, this time after the traumatizing election, where a lot of houses have become public spaces I've been going to people's houses where there are meetings to figure out what to do. To so I think that for me is also the street, you know. So yeah, I think you know post-election being a marker for so many, but even before then, houses, community centers, they end up being the spaces where marginalized people find each other, find community, 
and you know, I think Amy's point about privilege is well taken because even though we can say, of course, New York and the U.S. is different from Cuba, there's certainly communities that don't feel as comfortable in the streets. To I mean, if you look at that Philly Starbucks fiasco, um, you know, clearly there's markers for certain people who are mm -hmm. not given that freedom of the street. Uh, but Anne, I'd love Absolutely. to turn it over to you for your thoughts about where poetry hits the streets. Um, I think. I like what Tanya said about the street inside the house. I think for a writer, the street is um, inside the head. It's very withdrawn and tiny because um, if I publish a book, it goes out, you know, into the whatever sphere. I don't really have a connection with people when they're reading it. So um, that's a small stream, but. There's a kind of, what did Amy call it, a feedback loop? There's a feedback loop from the sense I get doing readings of what people are feeling about that sort of thing. And there's a feedback loop from teaching, because I teach at NYU. Um, and uh, some kind of vibration is set up by poetry, kind of like this one. <laughs> <laughs> between me and the people reading it. So that's one kind of street. The other, though, is... <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Multimedia <laughs> moderation. <laughs> we live in the future. Kind of space. The other is that uh, a sort of connection feedback loop, if you like, I have with history, because what I do in writing often is translate things from, the, uh, from antiquity. And that whole... Um, atmosphere of thought that existed in the 5th century BC can also be a street for, a, for me, for a writer, because I, you know, think what would Sophocles make of this sentence, and then I change it. So there's both that, both those levels, I think, for a writer. Yeah, the levels is really interesting. I mean, I have seen Amy perform her rap performances um, in places where they're announced and welcomed, but you kind of have this moment where when you're actually in the street or when, Tanya, you have done your actions, or Anne, I'm assuming also not everybody um, sitting in front of the plays that you've translated is 100% behind you. That space of people who are with you and people who are coming along for the ride and people who are maybe hesitant, um, how do those kind of different audiences uh, sort of inflect what you're doing? Do you think about those different audiences? Um, and, and I have a question later about bubbles, but also that can be brought into this conversation too about, about the ways that we sort of surround ourselves um, with wonderful like-minded people and, and how does that affect your, your performance and your sort of um, art activist art making? Yeah. All right. Um, we're just gonna go down the line here. Uh, <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think for me, uh, like I was mentioning before when I was rambling when I started, um, I really feel like it's an important thing to start these, for me to get out of my comfort zone as an artist and as a human being. And I think for the longest time I was performing within the arts context and I was making work for a really hermetic audience, you know? And at a certain point you start to realize you grow, but how much do you actually change and how much do you actually evolve when you're catering to the same audiences over and over and over again? So, and how much social change can actually happen? So I was just in, um, a residency at Anderson Ranch Art Center in Colorado, and there's a big gun community there. And the shooting, the Parkland shooting, had happened when I was on residency. And I went out to the gun show as research to kind of go have conversations with people about what the source of their, you know, interest and obsession with guns is. And it was really interesting because a lot of it is just passed down through family. You know, it's like a tradition in America to have guns in a lot of communities. And so I think it shifted the way that I perceive this issue and I'm doing a body of work around it now. But, you know, it's like the far right that was there hated cops, hated the government, and a lot of people in the far left are the same. So then you start to think about these strategies. I mean, they're coming from very different perspectives politically, obviously, and very different situ um, you know, histories and situations, but 
are there ways to build bridges? You know, are there ways to create dialogues in this gray area um, where these unlikely communities, you know, and audiences uh, might, you might not expect them to meet. And so I think um, in my work when I'm rapping, you know, I don't just want to be rapping in the art context. I want to be rapping on a larger scale in the rap community. Same with stand-up comedy. And it's, and these are all chances to be political and to, you know, express the ideas that you've been mulling around in your hermetic community in a larger context and to see that people aren't that much different. Even though there's a huge divide in the US right now, a lot of people are just scared. There's a lot of fear happening. And so how do we mitigate the fear by actually you know, making ourselves vulnerable and having a conversation with someone that might be a little bit uncomfortable? And I think that for me is a big part of um, what I'm trying to do in my practice. I'm also running for office and so that's another like sphere of politics um, where I think it's important for me at this point to engage and to create these uh, connections as opposed to divisions. So, yeah. We will get later into the fact that two, or maybe three, I'm not sure, Anne, of the people on this panel have run for office in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> so we'll come back President. to that. <laughs> but before that, gesture begins. Um, Anne, do you sort of have thoughts about that experience of, of the different layers of audiences, of communities that might be taking in what you've created and put out? Mm, not really. I, I mean, a, per, a poetry audience is self-selected. They're not going to come because they're against me, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so I don't think I'd take those risks. It, uh, it's only, well, through knowing Amy, I vicariously experienced that world of danger. <laughs> but <yeah>. poetry... <laughs> Poetry's pretty safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in, in my case, I think it's always a big negotiation because I think we also have the tendency to please the audience. We always we have a little bit of the tendency in my kind of line of work to to serve the audience. And as an artist, I think we need to shake the audience. And we need to remember that while we want to have a broader conversation, while we want to have the biggest group engaging possible, it is important that we see each of those people as individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the one thing we as artists can do that politicians don't do, mm -hmm. which is understanding that everybody here tonight is his own person, you know? Um, and that creates a level of complexity um, that is something that I always want to defend in the work because a lot of time I've seen in moments where everybody galvanized against one thing or, or everybody <coughs> all of the sudden a big group of people realized something. In a way they want to echo what they already know. They want to echo the sympathy of everybody. Uh, and I think I see myself as a little um, element that moves. For example, I've been defending like hell the fact that art is an agent of social change and that we need to be political and all of this. And now that everybody's doing it, so I'm trying to move <laughs> it a little <laughs> bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> to are like, yes, but, you know, art alone cannot change everything. And, and kind of m m putting some, uh, you know, nuances to uh, those comments. There's a quote of Gertrude Stein you could use here. Act so there is no use in a center. That's me. That's me. I like that. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's about that and about trying to remember that complexity is the best political tool. Yeah, I mean, in that sort of vein of the idea of yeah. people being very comfortable echoing each other, I mean, we've seen a lot of people take to the streets in epic numbers. I know that the project that's on display. Um, in words on the street at the Watermill Center came from the Women's March. Um, many of us were there. Uh, many of us have then not shown up at smaller rallies in our own communities about gun violence, about issues um, that are more local, more specific. Have you showed up for election? Have you voted? I all know. Of you? Well, well, that's yes, the most but that part. is exactly. Yeah. Forget the symbolic. Yes. Go to the concrete. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> but so there's like. Well, it's, it's, it's a very important part, I think. What do you think is not the most important part? 
That was an excellent point. <laughs> we do have a little audience Q&A at the end true. that we can ch channel all these conversations into. But I appreciate that. <laughs> we all do. Um, but yeah, I do want to, or do you want to answer? Uh, if you wish. Should I start already the Q&As? Or what do we want? <laughs> Rogue Q&A. No, I think I, don't, I get it. I get the frustration. I understand that society is fucked up and capitalism doesn't work. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I think um, there is also a symbolic on having a more diverse group of people sitting in those chairs. Mm -hmm. People that maybe are new to the job and maybe are a little more fresh than those people that have been there for 60 years or 40 years, you know, um, who are already corrupt. Um, so I understand and I'm a quasi-anarchist person, so I get it. But I also think what I like about the Women March is that it was a very clear political gesture. Seeing those two photos the day before in the opening, mm -hmm. and that day, that was the best slap in his face ever. Mm -hmm. So I think doing the voting and putting people of color and people uh, from different um, I, uh, gender identification in position of power might not change things right away, but might be a wall, a good wall, <laughs> a, a firewall to, wow, okay, I won't say anything Ooh. else. A firewall. <laughs> they heard you, Tanya. To, to actually, <laughs> you know, super extreme things that are happening that we don't know about inside those circles of power. But I hear you. Both levels are really important. I'm from Jersey City, and I think four years ago, there was an 18-year-old who ran for the uh, Board of Education. Uh, he was voted down, and then this time he got in. And it's sort of, you know, radical, amazing that somebody who was just in high school should be talking about education. That's and actually system, so. the story of Michael Moore. I don't know if you guys knew that. Yeah, he ran for office at a really young age, and then through that, I think, gained the courage to become the figure that he is today. So it's... Yeah, he w I think it was the Board of Education, but I can't remember. The school board is what it was. Yeah, it was a school board. That's right. Um, and, and the other thing, I'm sorry, I get passionate about that subject. So <laughs> uh, the other thing is, like, we always feel that everything ends the day we vote. And this is the day when everything starts. Democracy is not voting. Democracy is the possibility you have to, to make people accountable and to push people for your agenda and to be present in the circles of power. So I think that's also something that, unfortunately, and I don't that's know if you agree yeah, with. yeah. And the other thing I would say <laughs> is just the local too is getting involved at the local level to make change in your everyday life and community. Like there was just voting for participatory budgeting in New York, and that's a way that you can actually. I mean, there's controversy over that too, but like that is a way that you could actually put money towards what you want to see changed. So those little things you know shift the dial ever so slightly the more trans people the more queer people people of color we see the more hope it gives to a younger generation to stand out like we saw the people standing out in parkland and whatnot so it's kind of you know those little shifts are important as well i would just say but and i think to be a citizen is to participate mm -hmm. i think there is a uh, here in the united states i've been very shocked about what it means to be a citizen and not a citizen especially because I come from the my immigrant community. Um, I have my papers, but I, I have many of my friends who are undocumented. So I'm very interested in understanding, can we shift this idea of citizenship in this country? Yeah. Because some of my undocumented friends are giving more time and more energy to make this country democratic than some of the Americans. So Yeah, so true. Absolutely. Super well said, Tanya, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna leap right into the question about how you both ran for office. Um, so Tanya, you, in October 2016, uh, held a civic exercise slash performance where you ran for president of Cuba to, to call attention, it's, it's a gesture, I know. a gesture to call <laughs> attention to disempowerment and what you're talking about right now, this idea of disempowered citizens. Um, and then Amy, you literally ran for city council. Yes. Um, and then conceded, right. but will continue to run. So right. I just love to kind of dive into that conversation about where creativity and bureaucracy and all these things kind of come together. Well, I was part of a group in Cuba called Another 18, which is 2018, which is this year, and also a group called uh, Citizens for the Change. Um, and these were a group of activists um, and citizens who were fed up because they're not represented, and they say, okay, we should 
run. And I was one of the two artists there, so I decided to do a campaign to with them. I said, okay, I'll do a campaign. And actually, I never said, if you look at the video, I never <laughs> said precedent. <laughs> so this is how people put the stuff on you like they want, you know? Um, I said, let's run for all these posts. I will run, you can run. You propose yourself, I will propose myself. Of course, the Cuban government made impossible. Uh, not only me, but the 82 people who were going to run, um, more than half of them got in prison uh, for stupid things. Like literally, they came home and say, oh, we suspect that maybe, perhaps, you have robbed. <laughs> and then they took you in prison and they make a case, so therefore you cannot run because you have a case, an open case. Right. Um, in my case, in the case of all the people who are intellectuals, they, it was too gross, and we have also the protection of being here and being able to speak uh, in an international scale. So what they did is they, um, in my specific case, also in another family, they changed all the time the meeting or where, you know, the, the event of you proposing until literally the last time they changed it, I said, but when is it? The woman said, I don't even know myself. Oh well, like, they don't want to tell me. And like, she's the head of the commission of election <laughs> in my neighborhood. I'm like, what the hell? So they did all these tricks, you know? Um, and even then, I did an action the day of the vote when I demanded um, the person there to tell me um, if they're going to count the negative ballots. Because one thing they do in Cuba is if you say no, or whatever you want to say in contesting this, you don't exist. So they only count the positive ones. Mm. So, and it's ironic that you asked for presidency because today it was announced that we have a new president in Cuba, which is fake. Please <laughs> do not believe it. I please, please beg you, do not believe it. When you hear Putin, Putin, the Putin, 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 <laughs> the other guy, Mendelev, I don't know, the other uh, guy as a president and him being in the background, taking all the, you know, uh, moving all the threads, you believe it. So I please beg you to believe that Raul Castro has done the exact same thing. He's going to be the president of the Communist Party until 2021, which is basically the one who runs the show and he put this other guy, so when they do the change of the currency, which they desperately have to do, he'll take the blame. Mm. Believe me, it's all mm. fake. Mm. And it's all to please you guys, the foreigners, to say, oh wow, changes in Cuba. There is no change. I just want to say that. Yeah, no. And yes, I will run, for real. Yes. Because I'm fed up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that was my whole thing. I was so fed up. I was just, I was over it. And there was this question about how do we get more involved in social change as artists and as activists. And I said, well, let's figure out how to actually get inside the system and change it from the inside out. To your point, being that I've always been so jaded, I've been an activist for a long time, and I've only felt real social change in the streets or in communities outside of the system, so to speak, but we're at a point where we need as much help as we can get to change that system, and s and we need to understand what the system is. In the same way that you're describing the elections, the, the timing changing, we I feel like so many of us don't know anything about local politics or anything about the politics of what's happening in New York State, for example. And we have the agency to actually go to community board meetings, to actually make change about what gets funded in our communities, in our city, and in our state that can change the dial, especially being in such a um, sort of revered and looked at city as New York City, it means a lot to be locally active here. And so I um, sort of put my run out for city council in District 39 of Brooklyn, which is Park Slope, Gowanus, Kensington, and um, Carroll Gardens. But I did it so brazenly, sort of as a research project, just to say, you know, I'm going to expose the workings of local government and get people excited about politics. Fuck it, let's do it, you know? And so I said that, oh. <laughs> now they like us. They <laughs> <buy> <laughs> now because we're buying into the system, they're like, turn the light off. 
Uh, <laughs> oh my god. Um, scary. No. Um, so <laughs> I'm jarred. Okay. So <laughs> no. But anyway. So um, so I said let's do it. And so I said that, and then I realized that Brad Lander, who is the city councilman for that district, was running for his third term, and he's actually was named as the Nation Magazine as one of the top 10 progressive activists last year. He's done a lot of work with Get Organized Brooklyn, which is an organization he started. And so I went up to him at one of his meetings, and I'm like, hello, sir, I'm running against you for city council. And he's like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and I was like, uh... I don't know. <laughs> you were like, but it's a performative gesture. It's a performative gesture. And so part of it was I'm that. I'm voting for you. Like, I'm voting for you, but I'm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and part of it, I think, was, you know, thinking about the performance aspect of politics, being a performance artist, seeing Trump, who's literally a reality show star, and how that whole kind of ball of wax started to come unraveled where it's like, you know, yes, obviously politicians are performers, they're scripted, they're stylized, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we don't need more of that, you know? So that was the decision that I made when I was talking to him and I talked to his chief of staff. They were like, you know, you need to actually get involved in the community in a more direct way. You need to join your community board. You need to start coming to meetings. You need to actually get the lay of the land before you make these kind of, you know, honestly gestures that could adversely affect the political landscape because he basically said I'm going to have to invest money into the campaign against you that I could have given to other progressive candidates campaigns in Red Hook and all over the in, all over the city and I was like that's actually not legitimate for me to be doing that because that's the opposite of what my goal is so instead he was like come and work with me and volunteer with me and over the next four years learn the ropes and actually run in 2021 with experience and get the constituency when I'm not allowed to run anymore and so that's what I'm doing. And the thing that I learned was that the, the time scale of politics, and this speaks to your point of we've never seen real change through voting in elections, it's extremely long. And if you think about Obama and what he did, and we could go on and on about the pros and cons of Obama, he, it was quick, but he was also like campaigning for a really long time just to get into Senate and then the presidency. So if you think about that, it's sort of like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so I'm sort of, that's the way that I'm looking at it now. And I think there is real potential for change over a long period of time if we start getting people into office and do this now. Um, yeah, anyway, so that's the deal. So I'm still running for office, but it's a ways away. Yeah. Yeah. Vote yeah. <laughs> for Amy. Yeah. If you're in District 39. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'll transition from that idea of being a representative um, and the way that a lot of your work is often um, in translation, literally with Anne, but also um, as an interlocutor for other um, voices. And I'm specifically thinking about your work in translation, Tanya projects like Yo También Es Hijo, um, and the Immigrant Movement International, which is still up and running, even though you've basically walked away, um, which is, you know, I, I the good moment away. of success. I into the community. Exactly, yeah. Words are important. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> you are still, yeah, with them, but um, the idea of it continuing yeah. without you. Um, and then, Amy, um, your current project in relation to what you already started speaking of with the gun violence of the opposite of a weapon and, and getting community feedback. So in perhaps you'd like to start with um, how um, you maybe change your approach as an artist when you are um, speaking on behalf or translating. And you'll have to apologize that I had to adapt to your exciting addition to this panel without knowing much about translation from the classics. She, she's never read a word I wrote, so. <laughs> <laughs> so shameful. Blank, That's blank. what I'm going to be doing all day tomorrow. <laughs> um, I, what do you want me to talk about? Translation? Yeah, sort translation. Of? Hmm. Well, I don't know anything about, really, so. Well, uh, yeah, me neither, really. I mean, you, you do it. That's all it is. But the I was just thinking, um, the reason why uh, the f very first banner that Amy and I made, I think, was the Antigone banner that says, I was born to join in love, not hatred. And um, Antigone is really the original local artist, um, local activist artist. 
she just um, buried her brother. That was her whole action, <laughs> and it brought down the government. So the thing about translation is, for me, that, well, I don't know. Let's, let's go back. So I'm a middle-class, privileged white person, and so are many of you. And I go through days now in a kind of persistent, pervasive atmosphere of guilt. And that's what I liked about Antigone and the reason why we used Antigone. I mean, my internal reason for using Antigone as the first banner. Um, you're born into a life. It's all wrong. I mean, think about Antigone. She's a both the sister and the daughter of her own father. She's totally messed up. It's not her fault. There's nothing she can do about it, but she has to do something about it. That's sort of the position of a person like me doing something like translation, a completely elitist activity in the society we live in, and hoping that it makes some kind of difference, um, analogous to Antigone throwing a handful of dust on her brother's body, but it's sort of a shot in the dark. So in my case, um, I never want to talk for anybody. Um, and actually, my work has always been about personal experience or personal feeling that I don't know how to solve. And it has happened that all people feel connected with that. When I started working on immigrant movement international, um, it was a question I want to ask in a collective matter uh, to a specific people that I connected with because immigration. Then in the process I realized that I should not at all talk for anybody or I should not even ask the question because I had my papers, I have support that they don't have because I can be here and so on. So I think um, at some point um, I decided that it was better for the project if it was really about empowerment that the people were really empowered and that I leave the project to them to run it. And that was not walking away. It took almost nine months to do the transition because we did a school of art and activism where we uh, presented to the community, the people who wanted to engage in it, the possibility to understand what social engaged art was, like the things happening in the arts, but also to have some you know, technologies from the activist world. Um, and those are the people who entered the council of the project and are the one deciding what happens with the project. I'm not even in the council, you know. And part of the struggle I have as an artist is that institutions are not ready for that. They want art that is about social change, they want art that is political, they always want the name of an artist. Yeah, and I think that's sort of, you know, I went to see Immigrant Movement International not because I'm a child of immigrants, but because Tanya Ruggiero was exactly. associated and with it. So. And it's okay, it's okay. Today I was having a meeting with some activists from Italy for a project we're doing against the military, U.S. military bases there. And uh, it's funny because we were deciding the catalog and I say, okay, I just want to put no mores. And uh, they say, no, but we have to use you. <laughs> like we have to, I'm like, okay, you ask for it. That's different. But I'm saying when the, when the institutions, I mean, and it's okay, it's usable. I'm glad that you went because of that. But that doesn't mean that I have to talk to them. I'm just an, a, a bridge, you know, um, and a person who can share the privilege or, you know. So in Yotami Exijo, it was the same thing. I, I saw the thing that was happening in Cuba. I wrote a letter to myself, ideally for Obama and Raul and the Pope, but, and then a friend of mine, my sister read it, and she was so emotional about it, it's like, and she sent it to a friend, and this other friend put it on the internet, and I was out of my control. And then in a week and a half, we had 20,000 Cubans talking about it on the internet. So it was kind of the first uh, internet art piece, let's say, of Cuba. Um, but again, I didn't want to represent anybody, you know? Yeah, it seems so like there's sort of this core of the personal and your personal experience becoming this platform. So sort of 
in my position where I am, we talk a lot about the personal is political being sort of the slogan of a kind of feminist art base that people really tend to respond to because you're sharing something about yourself, you're opening yourself up, um, but it's been inter interesting to witness how you turn it into a platform mm -hmm. for so many other people that and aren't you. <laughs> and also my latest project I'm doing in Cuba, which is uh, INSTAR, which is the Institute of Artivism, Hannah Arendt. Um, the only thing I'm doing there, I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff, but the, the basically the one thing I'm doing as an artist is showing up without fear. And by doing that, other people feel they can approach the space and not have fear. That's it, you know? So I'm not talking for the others. I'm just being in a certain way. Um, um, and then people feel they can also, that gives them some sort of permission or protection or something, you know? So idea of permission is really interesting when you think about an artist who's able, like you're invoking the idea of social practice art and people sort of coming to something to maybe get something out of off of their chest or out of their system through this like approved way of existing with art. And so Amy, maybe you could talk about your opposite of a weapon project that you have going on currently, sculptural sort of social practice project. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So around the time that this Parkland shooting happened, I was in residence, as I was mentioning, in Colorado. Um, and there's a big gun culture there. And so I started, and I'm from Texas originally, so obviously a big gun culture there as well. Like, that's where I was raised. Um, and so I started asking this question, what is the opposite of a weapon? And just kind of put that out there. And, and to, to anyone that I could really get my hands on, to friends, to people that I would meet, and people that would come through the space, and um, also at the gun show. And so I was able to get a lot of different responses that then I translated into drawings and then translated into like ceramic action figures and soft sculptures. And so another thing that I was thinking is, you know, we have such a culture of violence and fear and how can we shift the dial to a culture of disarmament and nonviolence at an earlier age and is that even possible? So thinking about making soft sculptures, plush toys, things you can hug that serve as the antithesis of a weapon or sort of the opposite, quote unquote, um, and have them be something that not only you know the art world or adults can love, but that children would be excited about and start talking about and putting that idea into their head and that question. And so I made this series of prints that was sort of like a poster, and all the drawings are sort of childlike too, of all the different drawings and thinking about how you package that and packaging and advertising to children and how you can sort of infiltrate these other systems of consumption um, again, to shift culture. It's, it's all about subverting that culture. And with the project we're doing with Word on the Street, I wanted to give a little, because you started talking about the banners. Um, so Artists on the Street is sort of taken from the project Word on the Street, which is a collaboration between my siblings' um, uh, artist collective called House of Trees. And it actually started with Anne around the time of, the, of Trump's election and the Women's March. And I reached out to her just in desperation <laughs> of being like, you know, she's someone that I feel, you know, I met her through Laurie Anderson and like I feel I've, I don't know, it's like these people that have really influenced you in your life for th through their artistry and through their, your connection to them. And so I reached out to her as this kind of like, what do we do, you know? <laughs> and she, and so I was, I was asking if there was any language that she could contribute to sort of, you know, encapsulate the moment. And so she gave these beautiful phrases. One was a quote from Antigone. And if you don't know, um, she's done a translation, Anne has done a translation called Antigonic of Antigone, as well as, um, you know, in that phrase, I was born for love, not hatred, it's 451 BC, and we're still dealing with that. You know, that's something that really hit home when you sent that, and it was a quote from Antigone. So we made, so with the language that she gave, I made these large-scale handcrafted felt banners, and we hung them in NYU's Kimmel Center because we were able to get the space and teachers there. I'm an alumni of that space, and so we had this banner making in, in advance of the Women's March, and a lot of people from the art community and the creative community who had never protested before came, and it was such a beautiful moment because 
everyone's guards were down, everyone didn't know what to do, and it was a place to have a dialogue about that. And that's really all it was. And to bond together through making, to get off our devices and just be like in this echo chamber and to actually have a real conversation and to make, you know, to have that catharsis through creativity. And so we did that, and then we marched with those banners in the streets, and then we put them up in arts institutions after that. And so they went into Layla Heller Gallery. I remember seeing it at the Whitney Houston Biennial. At the Whitney Houston right Biennial. The you can see it hey. in the window. It's so <laughs> fabulous. Which is amazing. Um, and then I had the privilege of having a studio visit with Andrew Dinwiddie from Times Square Arts who saw them and was like, we've been wanting to do a banner project. And so they photographed the banners and reprinted them on advertising space all over Times Square. And so... It was amazing because to think about the heart of commercialism and advertising, kind of of the country of the US yeah. in a lot of ways, um, to put the language of resistance in that space was a very important and, and powerful thing that we were able to do. And not only that, but it was with all women artists, writers, and voices, which, you know, this preface sort of the Me Too movement, but it's, it's all part of the same, you know, unfolding dialogue that's been happening. So we were able with that commission to bring in Carrie Mae Weems, Wangechi Mutu for the first season. We did a banner making in Times Square. You saw a promo for a banner making we're doing on May 1st in Times Square um, with the new season with Tanya Bruguera, amazingly, who was able to join the project, which is awesome, through a connection actually through my brother who had worked with Tanya 15 years ago at the Watermill Center doing Endgame, Samuel Beckett's, uh, you know, amazing. Piece. And now it's back at the Watermelon Center, right? The whole exhibition is yes. There. And There's so banners. what you were seeing pre-show was there is an ex there is an exhibition of all the physical banners. The first exhibition of that at the Watermelon Center now through um, June nineteenth. And the other important p oh, and also Am Holmes who wasn't be able to be here and Lori Anderson are part of the new season, House of Trees with Naomi Shihab Nye. So there's new stuff to go see in Times Square. But um, we have to finish. Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll be the moderator here for a second. And cut me off. And say, everybody, mark me cut first me in your off. calendars for oh the yeah. banner-making experience. I'm such a rambler. Uh, it's okay, because now there's time for audience Q&A, <laughs> and you can continue to ramble. So if you have a question, if you could please go to the booth there where oh. the gentleman in the red shirt is holding the microphone <laughs> up since this is being recorded so that your question can be... Um, experienced the in the future. On the, on the yeah, can we get a little more lights people? in the audience? That is a little blinding from up here. So I just wanted to wait one quick thing is that this is also a collaboration with female refugees. So that's another important piece of the puzzle. That they part of the commission through the Watermill Center is to give money to this organization, Center for Refugee Services, and all female refugees are like helping fabricate and out in future Texas, right? yeah. out of San Antonio, Texas, and the in future will be making their own banners as well. So it's an ongoing, unfolding project. Um, anyway, yes. Diamonds, yes. <laughs> I'm in favor of finding diamonds. <laughs> um, well, I don't think those two uh, aspects are mutually exclusive. The um, 
attention to the truth of each part of the sentence and the speaking to um, local history or the issues of the day. You can do both of those things. I think um, through knowing Amy and also through working with Curry, my collaborator, friend, husband, um, <laughs> I've <What>? done <coughs> recently performative things and performative things involving other people. And um, that, mm, it doesn't just make a different audience, maybe a larger audience than a, a poetry reading. It, it, it makes the experience of doing it um, stretch. So we have worked with, um, uh, well, we worked with a guy from Yemen whose family was hit by a drone strike. And we had him come and read part of the text in Arabic. And I thought that that, although it didn't abandon responsibility to making the sentences be diamonds, it involved more, more of reality than my little poetic mind. So I think you can do both of those things still even now. and official and sanctioned political channels, the elections and all of that. But I wanted to add, actually, in this era, in this political moment, Trump and Pence, we have a fascist regime in power, and they are ripping up the normal channels. They are ripping up the rule of law. And I think that even in this time, more than ever, relying on those normal channels that he has no regard for is Sansara. Yeah. Amen. But do you have a question? I'm with you, and I think, to be honest, so far so good, but we need to to turn even yeah, yeah. harder the dial. I'm envisioning what if some people working in the government decide to have a strike? Why don't workers of the government have a strike or something like this? But at the same time, I think that not only because Trump is in uh, the presidency or Pence later, when he's removed or whatever, uh, but um, it is not only him, he's the symptom of what is even larger, which is how democracy has been raped so hard and so constantly that we don't trust it anymore, that we don't understand what it is anymore, that is you know, an exchange uh, currency for all the things, not for the thing it's supposed to be. So I am I'm with you, and I think it, as artists, I feel a big responsibility to see how can we find new forms of protest, together with the ones that we already know. I'm not saying one or the other. I'm saying to add on top of marching, on top of doing slogans, which they're amazing, and they last long time as a memory, as a civic memory that goes generation to generation. But how can we have the responsibility? And I heard so many people saying, artists can save this moment. Well, and I think it's because we have the responsibility to see how can we create something that is clear enough for everybody here and is unclear for them, for Trump. So he has to figure out what's going on so he cannot operate. So for me, the role as an artist right now is how can we make their evil not operative, you know? Not only to show it, but also to stop it, you know? 
And I just, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, and you were starting to say, like, think of different channels and different ways uh, to be creative. And I think we're living in a time of we've entered the black mirror and the media, in my opinion, is the way that we're potentially as artists, creators, and um, agents of change going to be able to shift the dial. If, you know, I got my New York Times update and it said, evening TV to watch James Comey. You know what I mean? And so this is where we're at. Everything is about who's a celebrity. Everyone wants to be in the media. This is, this is the regime we're under. This is the fascist regime. And you know everything with Facebook, Cambridge Analytics, everything that you see, we're surveilled, we're controlled. And so how can we change the system using the tools that are out there that they're using? And it's gonna be really hard because we're these individuals against these crazy big brother systems that are in place. But I think that's where we have an advantage as artists to get creative about the ways that we can use these platforms. And so for me, thinking about Kendrick Lamar just you know, won a Pulitzer. Okay, maybe people like that, you know what I mean, are people that can help organize and uh, you know yes I'm very also with you in terms of fascist regime it's tough there's war going on everywhere there's sanctions everywhere it's brutal out there the, the piece of catharsis is how do we take care of ourselves moving forward so we're not crushed so it's not like we had this spike of we're so inspired and then we just you know lose our momentum so that's that that's what that is in reference to thank you and I think actually we do have, okay, we're, we're moving for one more question, so thank you so much. Hi, my name is Josue. Thank you very much for speaking with me today. Um, my question is for Amy. Um, when you're talking about the local and getting involved in the local government of New York, what struck me was the detailed connection that you're occupying Soul now. The island I had belonged to the Lenape people and the action of getting involved in the local government seems to me to further obscure the history of settler colonialism upon which the very idea of a state can be based on and upon which like continuing fascist colonialism government seems to me to hide that and like the history in which democracy in this country has always depended on genocide or invasion of people of color. Uh, so I guess my question is how can we think and develop a critical artistic intervention into politics that tries to change the terms upon Great comment, I know, let's clap for that comment. That was great. Um, no, I think that's so true. I mean, that's, you know, everything that we're talking about here is built on the genes the, one of the biggest genocides, you know, in history of the native and indigenous peoples of this country. And so I totally agree with you in the sense that, you know, you don't wanna obscure it by playing into the system. And it's to your point too, where you're talking about refuse fascism, it's, it's, it's about, about, I mean, in my opinion, it's about a balance. It's about working within the systems that are in place to try and subvert them and to create new dialogues and new systems where we can support and raise up people of color, where we can support and raise up indigenous communities. The, the, to look to me, who's starting to engage in this at this moment for the answer to that question, I have to be really honest and reveal, you know, I don't have a specific answer for you where I'm like, this is the strategy to be able to do that. But I think through working with indigenous communities to build collective voices is a really important thing. And I think building a collective voice where it's not about the ego or the identity of one politician or one person to create change is very important. Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak to any of that, but. Thank God there was not for me the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, a really, hard, it's so hard. I, I think, mean, I think, I mean, I'm with you and I'm very yeah. happy that you said that um, because part of what happened in politics is we become blind in the process of being political um, and in the process of making sure this thing is being heard, we start silencing so many other things. So I think it's important um, to also, as I said before, the project I'm doing in Cuba, Instar, is not so much what you do in terms of like result and measurable thing, but how can you create an ecosystem that welcomes everybody to have power? 
you know, how can you create, because we are artists, so we can create, we can play with the system without becoming the system. That's for me what I would like to do in terms of this line of job, of work, um, of projects, is how can you see um, the, in the, the government infrastructure as a problem, not as a solution, mm -hmm. you know? And, yeah. and to go back to how Anne and Tanya both really started this conversation, talking about tiny, small changes and tiny, small possibilities, I thank you for bringing uh, the territorial yeah. acknowledgement question into the space, because as a moderator, I should have done that. And from what I've been told in Canada at all art spaces, they really start off the conversation by acknowledging whose land they're on. Right. So maybe we can all put that on our to-do lists for our future events together, apart, elsewhere. Um, so I thank you. And of course, I thank this fabulous panel, Amy, Tanya, and thank you so much. Thanks to the audience for being thank here. You. Thanks to everyone here. And I was also asked to kindly request that everybody vacate very soon because there's another <laughs> event coming up so we can take it to the streets, even though it's freezing out. And thank you again. Yes.